Now, for those of you who haven't been here for a couple months, uh, we have you can put so many th- lessons about Jacob in, in that. I think we're on lesson 11, to be quite honest with you. I think I have one more that I want to I want to mention uh, for sure. Um, but we are in Genesis chapter 33, which is kind of a unique um, a unique chapter because it talks about change and what it means to live a surrendered life for Jesus. Have you you have? How can you tell if someone is changed? Might be the question. You know, we have problems changing. Um, February, sorry, January 17th is known as Ditch Day. You know what Ditch Day is? That is usually the day that you have given up on your New Year's resolution. 16 days after New Year's, you have already quit. Like, we have problems in that area, don't we? I have problems in that area. It is hard to change or at least recognize or realize that change has happened. You may not realize this, but in the New Testament church, one of the difficult things was for people was the sudden turnaround of the Apostle Paul. For the longest time after salvation, Paul struggled. Struggled with the fact that there was a group of people that said, it's just a trick. If you read in the book of Acts, it took Barnabas to introduce Paul to Peter and the rest of the apostles because they didn't believe that he had changed. How can you tell if someone has changed? And this is important for us to understand and it's important for us to, to, to grasp as we continue in the series of Jacob, because the Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 is different from the Jacob in Genesis chapter 33. Well, how was he different? Well, in 32, he walked normally. After 32, he walks with a limp, that he had wrestled with God. He had come to a point where he had surrendered everything to God. And all, not only that, his name was changed from Jacob, which meant deceiver, or grasper, or grabber, or heel grabber, to Israel, one who strives with God. And so all of these things uh, are said to have happened, but still I have to ask myself, what, what would be the change? Where the, the, hey, the proof is in the pudding. Who ever thought that statement up? I still would like to talk to that individual. The proof is in the pudding. What's that all about? Somebody made pudding? And somehow that just de- declares whether something is true. The proof is in the pudding. Can anybody tell me what that was all about? Or maybe, hey, once you eat the pudding, then you realize that the pudding is real. I have no idea. Here I am on one of my tangents. But still, fact still remains. I think it's an important thing to know. That as we take a look at this and how change has taken place, that even before he had changed, that God had somehow blessed Jacob. And it leads to ask the question... That God would still bless Jacob even though he half, half served God. Well, you can say you can never really half serve God, can you? Well, no. But what happens is when we come into a relationship with Jesus, when we say, yes, God, I'm going to give you my whole life, that we do indeed give our life to him. But there is a process. There is a journey that we go on where God molds us into his image. And in that journey... There are times, what I will call 
surrender moments. Have you ever had a surrender moment where you're kind of going along the way and God points out something in your life and you struggle with it and then all of a sudden there's an altar service or something takes place or God grabs a hold of you and you say, okay, God, I give you everything. Here it is. This is all of me. And I believe that those are interjected throughout our life. In, in the life of a person who passionately loves Jesus, you're continually working to draw closer, to be molded into his image. And if you stop having those surrender moments, what happens is you just become stagnant in your walk. You no longer surrender. So basically what I'm saying, I agree. Does that, does that not make sense? So my question is, and the whole purpose of this message is this. What actually happens when we decide to give him everything? What takes place when God has it all? And with that, let me read to you Genesis chapter 33, starting at verse 1. Now remember, Genesis chapter 32, Jacob has a wrestling match with God. He surrenders everything to him, and he begins to walk away with a limp. And this is what we go into. Now Jacob lifted his eyes, and there Esau was coming, and with him 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And then he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed to them on, bowed, and bowed, sorry, himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So, and so he said, The children whom God has graciously, graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they bowed their children. They, they and their children bowed down. And, and Leah also came near, and her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? Remember, he sends the, the animals ahead of them. And, and this is what he's asking about. And he said, these, uh, these are to find favor in the sight of the Lord, of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were well pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that if I should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please, let my Lord go on ahead in his servant, and I will lead on slowly on pace which the livestock uh, that go before me and the children and are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Sire. It never mentions that he actually met him in Sire. We don't hear much of Esau after this. And Esau said... Now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day and his, uh, on his way to Sire. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, uh, built himself a house and made booths with his, uh, for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place was called Sukkoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which, he had, which is in the, the land of Canaan. And he came to Padam Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought the parcel of land 
where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elho, Israel. Wow. Why don't you read that whole passage? Why don't you just kind of read the, the juicy part, the one that we parted tonight, that we kind of been listening to this whole crescendo of what was going to happen between him and his brother. Well, I think that there's something it's important for all of us to understand. Now, just a couple things to note. It's important, and I kind of said this before. It's interesting that God had already been blessing Jacob prior to the absolute surrender, that God's grace and favor was still on him, that he protected, he provided for him, and he blessed him. But secondly, here's the thing, that even though Jacob received a blessing from God, God did not put him in a bubble and transport him out of the way. And so what happens is God chooses to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us rather than transporting us out of it. It's important for us to understand. God, and once Jacob had given everything, God helps him navigate, not transport him from the issue. In other words, he still had to face Esau. Now, there's three things, actually four things, but three areas where I believe healing takes place. And I think this is, this is a pivotal thing for us to learn today. What happens when a person absolutely surrenders? What is it that God heals us of? How is it that God honors us in that way? Well, give me a couple minutes and let me talk to, to you about a number of these things which I think happen in all of our lives. Not just Jacob, but in all of our lives. The first thing is that he heals us, he says, of our distress, from our fear. Isn't it funny that at the greatest time of victory that Jacob has, seconds later is the greatest challenge in his life. It's almost as though the one was needed to get him through the other. And sometimes that takes place. Sometimes the greatest, the greatest victories that you'll have will be followed by the challenge that God has given you the victory for. So if you're here at an altar and God does something wonderful and your thought is to sit on it, then there might be a challenge for you. You see, here's the thing. Faith and fear cannot coexist. One will eventually win over the other. There'll be one that prevails. And the thing is that fear and distress is a huge paralyzer. It makes you focus on the wrong thing. It makes you see the mountain rather than the mountain mover. It makes you see the giant instead of the giant slayer. It makes you see the size of the problem rather than the size of your God. It will paralyze you, but it will also be the great preventer. It prevented, it prevented Israel from entering into the promised land, but it also will prevent you from having breakthrough in your life. It'll prevent you from having peace. It will prevent you from accomplishing the vision, to, from, get, from seeing the destiny that, that God has for you. But not only is it the great preventer, it is the great, I'll call it the great pessimist. It is that thing that causes us to settle for less. It makes you compromise. It makes you exaggerate and inflate and embellish a situation which is not as big as what you think it is. 
It makes you jump to conclusions. It makes you cross bridges that you never have meant to have been crossed. It makes you, it makes you enact the worst case scenario. That's what the stress does. Oh, this is what's going to happen. This is, this is terrible. This is going to take place. Esau's going to kill me. What happened to Esau anyways? You ever figure that out? What was that all about? That's kind of like, we were kind of expecting this great big, you know, sometime, something to take place where God was going to supernaturally deliver this angry man. But that's not what happened. Now, there are differing thoughts as to what happened with, with, with Esau. One, one thought was this, that in the 20 years that it happened to take place, he became a very wealthy man. And so 20 years kind of washes away some of the memory. And so he decided to let bygones be bygones and that, uh, you know, he wanted to make peace. My problem with that is this. You don't make peace with 400 angry men with you. The other thing was this, was that Esau had full intention of getting his pound of flesh. But while God was working on Jacob, God was also working on Esau. And something supernaturally happens. Interesting. You know that spot where it says, where Jacob says, you know what? When I saw your face, Esau, it was like seeing the face of God. There are two different thoughts on that. The one thought was this. That Jacob was just being that wily, deceitful guy, just kind of like Laban was, and he was kind of uh, buttering up his brother. The other one is this, that Jacob had a sin, you see God, you don't live. And basically what he was saying was this, Esau, I thought this, as soon as I saw you, I was going to die. I thought you were going to kill me. That was the situation, that's how, how difficult it was. But here's the thing, to live a fearless life is not to avoid scary situations. And the question you have to ask yourself is this, what is the Esau? Because eventually you have to face Esau, and it might be not just your brother, but it could be confrontations with people. It could be that daunting task, that thing that God has asked you to do, and when God asks you to do something, many times it is way beyond your ability to get it done on your own. Or maybe it's that health diagnosis, and you are afraid and you're saying, God, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can live with this. I don't know how the situation is going out. And, you, and you're stuck with that. Or maybe it's an intimidating step of faith. Or maybe it's a traumatic event. Or maybe it's a reoccurring dilemma. Something, the past, revisiting. I'm not too sure. All I know is this. Is that Esau is alive and well today. And God seeks, first of all, to heal us of our distress. God has not given us a spirit of what? A spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Have you ever considered that verse? When, when Paul writes that to Timothy, Timothy is a young pastor who is intimidated. He gets sick easily. His mom is a well-known, well-respected Jewish lady in the community. His father was a Greek. So in other words, at the early stages of the church where mostly everyone was Jewish, they didn't really accept him to begin with. And here he is being asked to lead a difficult church with a whole bunch of intimidation. That's why Paul says, listen, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. 
And I believe this. At the point of surrender, the one thing that God does is he changes our perspective. That we begin to see God instead of the circumstance. And not only does he work on us, but he works on the circumstance at the same time. He heals our, um, he heals our distress. The other thing is this. He will also heal uh, our dark past. He'll heal, like, stop and consider this situation was like 20 years in the making. A lot of water under the bridge. A lot of things have taken place. And I could imagine that as Jacob is walking towards his brother, he is considering all the things that have happened in the family over the last number of years. And many of us, if we were here today, would be honest and say, Pastor Mike, if I could sit down and tell you about some of the things that have happened in my family, you might be surprised. Well, yeah, I'm sure that I would be. Because all of us have a history, and all of us have hurts. And maybe as you look back in your past, you see a whole bunch of hurts. Or maybe you see a whole bunch of regrets. Or maybe the abuse that happened to you as a child comes up. Or maybe the past has defined you. And it becomes the baggage that you carry around. Or, or maybe someone or people have made a false statement about you. And you have fought to wear that off of you. And you might be here and you might be running from your past. And it just keeps catching up to you. And some of you have no power over your past. You're just a victim. It wasn't anything that you did. You were just there at the time. You were just the punching bag. You were just the one who was hurt. Or maybe you are the one who was here and you were the one that caused the hurt. You were the one who caused the pain. Maybe you are the contributor. Or maybe it is just a generational thing that the sins of the Father have followed you and are still something that, that weigh heavy on you today. But I can't help but think that when Jesus, uh, when we give Jesus everything, he sets out to heal all of our baggage. But the only baggage that he can heal are the things that we actually freely give, some of the things that were going on. The truth, is, the truth is, you can never erase your past, but you can always surrender your past. Isn't that true? Sometimes we don't realize the reality of that. I have a friend, and uh, as we grew up, I had a front row, a front row seat to repercussions of abuse that had happened in the life of his, his mother. His mother from the time that she was about four years old until the time that she was a teenager was um, molested every single week for like 11 or 12 years from a family member. And so what happens is she, one of my closest friends writes a story, writes down a book of everything that happened, not just the abuse and everything that happened, but also the road to healing that had taken place because it took a little while for, for God to, um, for her to allow God to administer the healing. But when it came time to label the book, to, to title the book, they titled the book, Scars Don't Hurt. Why would you change that? He said, he said my mom kind of said, as she spoke for years until she passed away recently, she spoke uh, to, to women who were in abuse. And he said, the thing is, 
the scar still remains there. But if you let a scar heal, the scar remains there, but it no longer hurts. And I believe that that's what God does to you. So when all things are passed away, all things are become new, and I realize that that has to do with the gospel and the sin. But I believe that there's also a parallel that happens, that when we give Jesus everything, we become new, but there's also a process of God taking away everything that we hand to him. Even the aspect of, of baptism, the you go... And the one thing that God intended to do upon complete surrender of Jacob was to feel, heal the family hurt and the damage of the past. And if he did it for Jacob, the question remains for us today, does he do it for you? The tragedy of that statement is this, that there are many people who have been in my office who said, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, I know that that happened to Jacob. I know what the Bible says, but you really don't know my dad. You don't really know my mom. You can't comprehend some of the things that happened to me in, in, in rooms where nobody knew what was going on. It was all great. Sunday morning, everything was great. Everyone's praising the Lord. But as soon as we got in that car, as soon as we drove back home, it was a totally different story, Pastor. I don't know if I can ever get over that. God heals us of our distress when we give everything to him. He heals us of the dark past. He heals us also uh, of what we will call disunity. I think one of the main reasons that this happens, this takes place, and, and, and Jacob gives him everything. The first thing he wants to do is to cause reconciliation, to restore the relationship between him and his brother. Why is reconciliation so important to God? Because it mirrors the gospel. If you're here and you're listening online, or perhaps you're here in the service, and, and you've just kind of been coming to church, and, or, or maybe you've been here for a long time, but just have never, ever actually given Jesus everything. The whole aspect of the gospel is the fact that we are not right with God, and never can be made right with God. But God comes and dies on the cross so that we can be reconciled. The whole gospel is based on God restoring the relationship between him and man. That basically is the gospel. And when we give Jesus everything and we say yes to him to come into our hearts, the gospel was received and, and God comes into our hearts. Now for us, those of us, we've heard that a thousand times. But if you're maybe listening for the first time, it's something which is important for you to understand. It exemplifies it. It exemplifies the perfection of the Trinity. And the reason this episode happens immediately between Jacob and Esau was that in order for God to fulfill what he had to in his life, the relationship issues had to be resolved. Reconciliation stops, or lack of reconciliation stops our relationship with God. It becomes a major part of the surrendered life. And if you ask Jesus to come in, and if you say, God, I've given you absolutely all of my life, reconciliation with whoever in your life will always be a crossroads that you will come to. You can only be mature and as mature in Christ as your worst relationship. And Jacob, until this point, never had reconciliation. Think about his story. He is born holding on to his brother's ankle. There's 
conflict after conflict. And the conflict wasn't with his brother, it was with his dad, and then it was with him leaving, and then it was with, his, it with, with um, Laban, his uncle, and then amongst his wives, disunity, lack of reconciliation. And he is, at this point, get this, 97 years old. And he had never had reconciliation. In order for God to put him in the place to do what God wanted to do, reconciliation had to happen. The Bible goes on and talks about the fact that you can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you are reconciled with your brother or sister. It is that potent. He mentions it in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, if you got your gift, you're going to the altar, and someone has ought against you, leave your gift at the altar, make it right with them, then give your gift. He mentions this in the parables. A guy owns billions of dollars, and the king forgives him, and then he turns around, doesn't give somebody a couple dollars. King throws him in jail, says, you're not going to get forgiveness. Think of John chapter 13, verse 35. But this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There is something completely powerful, something untapped that we have in today's church. It's the power of unity, that there's a blessing, that there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit having to do with unity. And in this case of reconciliation, between, it's between physical brothers. That's not always the case, though. We're up against a time like no other I found in church history, as long as I had been alive, where there's just been disunity. And we're really good, aren't we, at masking that disunity? Well, I know that you don't agree with me, but we can still dwell together, brothers in unities, and sometimes we mean it, but other times we say, that guy's an idiot. I can't believe that he believes that. That, that there has to be somewhat of a breakthrough in the church having to do with unity. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the church. Maybe it is between you and a family member. Maybe you and a neighbor. Maybe something taking place at work. Something going on. You will never grow past your worst relationship. It required a normally unhumble person to bow down before Esau seven times. It was the humility that took place for God to erase over 20 years of hostility. And when you give your heart to Jesus, and I'm talking about surrendering him, getting to that point where you say, okay, God, you have everything. First thing he'll deal with is healing your distress. He'll also seek to heal your dark past. And he'll also seek to Heal this unity in your life, making you one in Christ. But that's not where this ends. I guess if you were to grasp that, it would be a good thing. But it goes on to say this. There's a conversation between him, and then it says that he actually comes into the promised land. And it says that he, he buys a house. He lived in a tent for years. Finally, he begins to settle down, and he gets to that place where God wants to be with him. So he does all this healing, but it was in order to honor his destiny. That when we give God everything, that God has a place for us to go. He has a job for us. He wants to fulfill something through us. 
And so what happens, if you take a look at the pattern, God, Jacob gives him everything, then God heals him so that he can fulfill the destiny. Sometimes we get stuck in the healing process and never observe the reason why it really happens. Sometimes we get into this form of, of what, we, what I'll call Christian actualization. Well, God, I want God to have all he has for me, and I want to be healed, and I want to have all these wonderful things happen to me, and then we forget it there. I think, I think church or Christian self-actualization might be the cult of the North American church. And that we pursue health, we pursue all these things, and we forget that it's a reason for it. We forget, like, we think that that is the base of everything, and self-actualization is at the top, but really, the gospel turns it upside down and says this, seek me first, my righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. That everything that he had done, all the healing he had done, was due to the fact that he wanted to create a great nation. And all the stuff that happens in this chapter affect you and I today. You and I are today here because a nation was established. And a savior was birthed from that nation. And people accepted him as he had died for their sins. And you and I are here as a result of what happened thousands of years ago. It leads me to ask, if that happens with Jacob, are the actions that I have right now, are the things that I do right now, are they conditioned to affect my children who will watch what I do? But not only then, my grandchildren and their children. Is what I do right now affecting what happens generations from now? If I stop and settle and compromise my life, will my kids see that? And will they decide to coast and compromise their life? And when it gets passed on to their grandkids, does it, does it become even more? And, and is there some kind of God-ordained butterfly effect? Is the way you live right now, if you're living an unsurrendered life right now, will it affect my great, great, great grandchildren? Well, if you look at the life of Jacob, you may be inclined to say yes. It makes a difference. And the truth is this, you were never meant to fill a pew. You were meant to fill a destiny. Are you fulfilling the destiny that God has for you? Important question to ask. One of my favorite authors, Leonard Ravenhill, had something really convicting to say, and I, I, I have it up on here. So Jesus did not come into the world to make bad men to good. He came into the world to make dead men alive. So the question we have to ask yourself is, are you alive? Are you fulfilling the mandate that God has? Or are you just coasting? Or are you half-serving him? And God is still kind of blessing you because you gave him to him. But he's wanting you to get to a point where you surrender. Surrender absolutely everything. I was listening to Bryce, and, and I had already had my conclusion set. <laughs> but I was listening to Bryce talk, and, and it just reminded me of the conclusion. This is my conclusion. Do you remember a time, for those of you who kind of maybe have been a, in this Christianity thing for quite some time and you were, you were a young person, do you remember a time as a young person where um, you sat at an altar, maybe it was a camp, 
and all of a sudden you're sitting in a service and God gets a hold of your life and you say, God, I'll give you, give you everything. I remember as a, a young person, Rich Wilkerson speaking, at Kim, I want the cross. And, and I remember the service as a kid, like I think I was 13 or 14 years old and there was this silence and then all of a sudden one person says, I, and the whole place erupts with this shout, I want the cross, and people just ran to the altar, and, and God just did so many wonderful things, and I still remember with tears in my eyes at an altar, saying, God, I promise to give you everything, everything, here I am, send me, I abandon my faith, I completely surrender my life, have all of me, God, here's my question, when was the last time as an adult, you've had that moment. When was that last time you maybe sat in your pew, came up to an altar, and renewed that, had that surrender moment? God, have all of me. Heal me of the distress in my life. Heal me of all the junk that happened in my past. Help me to get to know people and to get rid of all the junk that has happened so that you can fulfill a destiny in my life so that my kids can serve the Lord and my grandkids can serve the Lord and their kids can serve the Lord. And God, I just want to give you everything. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name as we come out of COVID that there will be an opportunity that we have to change but I realize how change is a difficult thing. The last thing I want is an altar where we make a promise to change and then have a, a ditch day 16 days later. But if we get to that point where you really meet us, if we get to that point, Father, where we just sit at an altar and we say, God, thank you for everything you've done. I just want to get to that point where I give you everything. So continue a work in me. Continue a process where you mold me into your image. Allow the presence of God. And just like Jacob, who was able to get through that time because he surrendered everything to you, Lord, that will, that will also be applied to my life as, 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 I, as I seek to serve you with all of my heart, as I seek to give you everything, as I, as I come in tears before you and say, here I am again, God. This is my life. A whole bunch of stuff has gotten in. But I need to have that time of surrender again. I need to have that time, Lord, where I say, okay, God, here, here, take it. Have all of me. Move in my life. God, do that. Holy Spirit, do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, let's stand together. Again, the altars are open for anyone who would like to spend time at the front in any way. The pews are open. I'm going to allow uh, Glenn to close. And uh, we're going to trust that God is going to do great things. Again, if you want to be, uh, information for the all-night prayer, get in contact with the church or Sherilyn. And uh, we'll inform you for everything that takes place. God, move in a powerful way, we ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's continue the conversation online. Visit us at BethelBrandon.ca or follow us on Facebook. Thank you.